Welcome to your upfront moment. We're building a confidence revolution. Welcome to this week's Upfront Moment. This week I am joined by the brilliant Viv Groskop. Viv is an award-winning writer, comedian, broadcaster and performance coach. She is the host of the chart-topping and award-nominated podcast How to Own the Room, which is the biggest public speaking podcast in the world, with over a million downloads and interviews with brilliant people talking about public speaking, confidence and managing high-pressure situations. Viv is also the author of four books, including the best-selling How to Own the Room, Women and the Art of Brilliant Speaking, and Lift as You Climb, Women and the Art of Ambition. Any of you who are listening in who are bonders or global bonders will be very familiar with Viv's work as we love to champion and cheerlead the brilliant stuff that she puts into the world. So I loved having this time to talk to her one-to-one about all things confidence, courage, and in this conversation, comedy. We talked about micro moments of confidence and how you can weave them into your day to day. We talked about this beautiful idea of being confidently insecure and the damage that our relationship with the International Court of Confidence can sometimes cause us. I hope you love this conversation. Enjoy. So hi Viv, welcome to Upfront Moment. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. I'm thrilled to be here and always so happy to see you, Lauren. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You're saying it's been a while since we've had a, a confidence chin wag and you've done all sorts of amazing things since then, including publishing your new book. So I'm excited to have this conversation and have this time with you. And I was, as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, you're normally the one who asks the questions and you're the interviewer and you chair panels and conversations about confidence and I thought I wonder what now that you're on the other side and you're getting asked the questions like what shall we talk about what feels what feels present for you in this space of confidence that we both work in oh well what always feels present for me in some ways doesn't change but Mm. it becomes uh, amplified or uh, lessened from time to time so for me the thing that's always present is the huge prevalence of anxiety in society Mm. I mean it's I mean I'm Mm. laughing as I talk about it because it's just become such a cliche you know like anxiety is obviously a medical disorder that when people have it very severely they need to seek medical help Um, and I really advocate people doing that if it's you know causing them difficulties in their life on a on a severe scale but Mm -hmm. anxiety generally Uh, as general worry about life um, and about career and about how you're managing in relation to everyone else. Um, Mm -hmm. Since I started doing this work over the last 10 years, opening this conversation about confidence and how you present yourself to other people and how how relaxed you feel around other people, I just feel as if the the spikes in people's anxiety are coming more and more and Mm -hmm. they come more frequently. 
So I used to do a lot of events before the pandemic when I published How to Win the Room and the podcast for that started, which was in 2018. And I feel as if people's uh, level of anxiety then was it was slightly lessened and it was more of a oh let's have a an interesting and challenging conversation about what it means to own the room what it means to be confident it was much more theoretical and abstract Mm -hmm. Um, it was something that people are always fascinated by and you know we could have a cold conversation about the capitalist um, edge to that that Mm -hmm. uh, you know some people come to this work not because they want to feel less less anxious but because they want an edge uh, on Mm -hmm. other people Uh, and I think before the pandemic that was slightly more of a theme but during the pandemic people's anxiety obviously was was at an all-time high and their whole feeling around being other around other people and how they feel around other people completely changed Mm -hmm. and a lot of the conversation became less about how do we show up for each other in public uh, how do I give a good speech all of that traditional stuff Mm -hmm. it became much more about how do I manage to work on my own? How do I manage hybrid? Mm. How do I manage my energy on on screen? All of those things. And then since then, we're now in this kind of very strange in-between space where I think lots mm. of people feel more confident from time to time because life has got back to normal over the last sort of 18 months for, for most people, not for everybody, but for most people. Mm-hmm. And that there's still this... I think underlying anxiety about so many themes, whether it's politics, whether it's gender issues, whether it's diversity, lack of progress on a lot of these fronts, generational issues, different generations feeling so wildly different about these issues. And on top of all of that climate crisis. Yeah. So I think there are, there's a lot of anxiety there's a lot going on. out mm-hmm. there. And so the work that I do, the conversations that I have, which really all started from me moving from journalism to stand-up comedy uh, more than 10 years ago, that's how I came to be talking about all of this. Those conversations have become in some ways much deeper than I was expecting. So I like it when we talk about the superficial and we say, well, when you give a speech, should you have a a card with bullet points on it? Oh, no. Yeah. I I love talking about all that. But I also love the deep, more underlying picture of, you know, how do we manage in this age of anxiety? And I don't just say that as a buzzword or to try and make Mm -hmm. people worried. I say it because I do think that you know, I'm, I've just turned 50. And so I've been around since the early 70s. <laughs> I have three kids who are in their teens. And I think we're living through a period that is very pressurized for people. Mm. And it isn't just about confidence and how you show up at work, although those things are really important. But it's really how secure you feel in yourself. And I think that, you know, it's it's a very different world. And thank God, uh, for good reasons, often very different world to what it was in the 70s, 80s and 90s. But the level of security that you had then, in a kind of psychological sense of what you think the world's going to be like, what your aspirations might be for what you're going to do when you grow up, mm-hmm. if you're a kid, you know, those things were relatively calm and and you could have an idea of how things might pan out but I think nowadays that's completely changed and I interview so many different people about how they feel about the world the aspirations they had for themselves as a child what their life looks like Mm -hmm. now 
And I feel like those conversations are completely different to the conversations you might have had in the same way in the 80s or the 90s. You know, we're in an a really fast changing environment now. I often get asked to to talk about journalism because that's something that I've done for the last 30 years. And I usually don't talk about it because I feel like anything that I know is not going to be relevant in six Mm. months time, let alone in five years time or 10 years time. So the whole environment that we live in is very fast changing. There are a lot of avenues that you can go down that will fuel your anxiety so the conversations that I have that I really love are about how we stay positive amidst all of that and do things that are are practical instead of becoming overly analytical of why is this happening why is this so terrible why is this so difficult really try and be practical and I know that's what you do at Upfront as well and I think it's so important for us to put at the top of the agenda to stay motivated and keep mm. focused on what keeps us calm and keeps that anxiety at bay. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much in there, but it makes me think about, as you say, when we talk about confidence and here the conversations that come up most often around confidence, it often feels like these bigger moments of job interviews, being on a stage, asking for promotion, you know, putting your work on the internet, whatever that might be. But I do think there's so much, almost more power in the confidence of the, it's like the micro moments of confidence in the day-to-day that I think is what where you're going with what you shared on. What are those things that you do in the day-to-day to keep you connected to your truth, to your values, to your power, to your potential, when often we're operating in contexts that are not enabling us to thrive because of decisions governments are making, because of how our media is structured, you know, choose one. <laughs> there's there's <laughs> many there's many factors not helping. Um, and what for you, I know we were chatting before we went live that we've both recently found cold water swimming. This will be my second winter of swimming in the ice and or dipping in the ice rather. And I know that's something that you've really embraced over over lockdown as well. Like, what are the things that you see in your life and that you kind of coach others on, like those micro moments to build confidence as a kind of bam to this pressure that you described? Yeah, we all want some kind of balm that you can mm. just buy and apply it <laughs> yeah. and then feel grounded. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's I know it's a, it's a kind of slightly hippie way of thinking of it but it's it's about feeling grounded and Mm -hmm. that is something that I think a lot of people struggle with and it's completely individual it's it's totally specific to everybody Mm. so one thing I would say is be very wary of other people's solutions for being grounded Mm -hmm. you know for some people it's yoga for some people it's meditation if those things don't work for you it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you it might be that you are grounded by seeing your friends regularly and going for cocktails with them or having a you know cheese and wine evening once a week like where you invite way too many people you know it's all about recognizing what gives you energy you know what gives you calmness what keeps you Mm -hmm. balanced and what allows you to hold the world at bay Uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit Uh, you know comparisonitis especially because of social media and seeing other people's lives the whole time you know if you think about it and you know for older people this is so obvious you know when we were younger 
we just didn't see so much of what's going on in other people's lives. Yeah, you just didn't know, didn't have access to it. We didn't even know about it. And even then, you know, the expression keeping up with the Joneses, that comes from the 1950s, even then people felt pressure of, Mm -hmm. oh, am I as good as this other person? And am I as happy as them? Am I as relaxed as them? Have I got as much time to go cold water swimming as they have? (laughs) And now you see all of that on Instagram Mm. or, you know, whatever social media you use. And and it's all curated because, you know, we all want to show our best selves on there or some of us, uh, some people want to... um, you know get followers by showing their worst selves on there which is also another way of getting yeah, different strategy <laughs> yeah different kinds of comparisonitis so finding a way that works for you and you know it's a, it's a really um cliched and obvious thing that all coaches use uh, is going back to stuff that made you feel relaxed as a kid you know what are the things that have fallen away in your mm. life that you used to um, take refuge in as a child and I'm really lucky because I've kind of made my work and my life out of a lot of those things you know for me it was writing uh, and I always like to be in solitude from time to time although I'm a very extrovert energy driven person I love to be mm-hmm. in solitude and have time to write uh, mm-hmm. and time to think about things and time to daydream that was really important for me as a child rediscovering that for me I did automatically become more grounded when I started performing comedy because Mm. when I was a kid I used to spend a lot of time like messing about making jokes being silly Mm. um, especially with my sister I used to watch a lot of like rubbish telly and (laughs) loads of comedy on telly I love you know I love all of that kind of thing and it had become slightly missing from my adult life when I was in my mid 30s and I had three young kids and it was at that time I realized I'm kind of becoming less like myself that's the real key if you're thinking my life doesn't just doesn't feel very me and Mm -hmm. for me the solution was changing tack and starting to perform comedy starting to write comedy and putting that at the heart of my life and that unlocked a lot of things for me because it was fun so Mm. finding and I'm not suggesting that that would be fun that's not going to be fun for a minority. For most people. <laughs> right? Just like probably cold water swimming is actually only fun for a minority of people. Yeah. So it's finding your thing. And once you find your thing, it is amazing because you'll find other people who are in that tribe mm-hmm. who maybe you didn't even know about. So swimming was a really great thing for me as well. Again, when I was a kid, I love to go swimming in the sea. You know, I would only probably do it once a year if we went on holiday and we didn't really go on holiday very much. So I hardly ever swam in the sea. But when I did, I absolutely loved it. And during the pandemic, I had the time and the ability, because I couldn't go anywhere, to find these groups of people who were going swimming in the Thames or in outdoor Mm -hmm. lakes and realise that these groups of people exist who are not triathletes, who are no, not, <laughs> you know, who don't own a wetsuit. And I yeah. always thought that world was closed to me because I wasn't a triathlete and a wetsuit owner. I'm just a, I'm a dipper, you know? Yeah. And realizing that whatever the thing is that gives you comfort or makes you feel relaxed, makes you feel more like yourself, there will be other people out there doing that thing and you'll find them. And yeah. it doesn't have to be some, You know, when I did comedy, it did become this massive, big difference in my life and it became part of my professional life. I'm not going to become a professional cold water swimmer. That would be hilarious. But recognising that whatever you choose to do, 
it doesn't have to be some massive big change in your life mm-hmm. it could just be that you know you drop in on a yoga class every fortnight or you do you know five minutes of meditation every other day because you've only got five minutes there's so much pressure as well I think to make these big changes and it's okay to just try things and think oh yeah I loved I don't know I loved drawing when I was a kid I'm just gonna buy a load of drawing materials and just spend some time doing that and just do it for a few weeks and if you like it continue if you're just like actually no I don't like this anymore it doesn't matter (laughs) and that's again something that I really learned from from live performance is experimentation is okay it's okay to kind of start things and then drop them to take it up again to change your mind about things Mm -hmm. those things are all fine and I think there's so much in our culture that is telling us you'll only be confident and you'll only feel grounded if you really commit to this yeah the secret recipe yeah yeah and it's just not true life is just so much messier than that yeah and I do think experimentation is a really key part of growing confidence, you know, because it's taking those actions that that are are stretching your comfort zone. I think stand-up comedy is such a good example of that. And I love the, I was reading about your first book, I Laughed, I Cried, which you wrote about, you did 100 comedy gigs and 100 nights. Yeah. I mean, that's just wild. Like, tell us about that. And where did your confidence come from to do that because you you know you didn't have the experience the public speaking experience the performance experience all the stuff you have now so take us back to that place when you decided to do that yeah that was really the seed of all the things that I'm talking about now and everything that's led to how to own the room and this new book happy high status that's where I first learned all of those things so around about 2008 which was the time of the financial crisis 2009 I had been a freelance journalist for about it must have been about 10 years I was going to say like 10-15 years and I was in my mid to late 30s so I first went freelance when I was 27 as a writer I'm having previously done magazine and newspaper jobs right back in the days when um, I barely had an email address right (laughs) Because people didn't do email, let alone social media. So those were the jobs that I had early on. on My first job was on Cosmopolitan magazine. I worked in Esquire magazine. I worked at the Daily Express, which was horrible. I worked in the (laughs) Daily Telegraph, which was also horrible. And then when I became uh, freelance, I started writing a lot for publications that I felt more in tune with like the Guardian and the Observer Mm -hmm. and I had a pretty nice life as a freelance writer and that's around the same time that I had my three children and that suited me really well and it was that was a huge lesson in my life of running my own life not being dependent on a boss Mm -hmm. learning that it's okay to be a freelancer you know I'd I'd received zero information through the whole of my life about how to work independently how to Mm -hmm. be freelance how to be creative how to take rejection I had to just learn all of those things and it was such an eye-opener for me to realize that those things are not as scary as you think they are there's just a process to all of them and the more you strengthen that muscle of Mm -hmm. pitching ideas and being rejected 
of taking a long time to form relationships with people where they trust you and want to commission your work you know learning all of that over time was so valuable to me so that's what I was really doing like through the late 90s early 2000s starting to have my children um, and having the freedom as well to have my children because one of the reasons I went freelance was because I'd seen so many colleagues um, in the newspaper industry struggling with you know five day working week not being able to leave work until sort of seven or eight o'clock they never saw their kids I didn't want that for myself so I had this very nice really freelance writing life and just suddenly something had become very stale for me Mm -hmm. Uh, and the crash around 2008 2009 meant that I suddenly started to see patterns in how work was being distributed what money was on offer how easy it was to get commissioned people really starting to be difficult around fees Mm -hmm. a lot of different publications struggling because it was really that time the advertising industry collapsed so I had this personal feeling of being stale and then this external feeling of a huge change is is at foot here and the kind of job that I do now is not going to exist in 10 years time Mm. and I remember at the time I'd just been let go from sacked basically from a column I used to write a column for the London Evening Standard and as part of that column I could write about whatever I wanted so it's pretty dream job but I could also I used to review theatre in my column as part of my column every week so I'd have an opinion piece and then review theatre and I remember being sacked from the job and that night I had tickets uh, to go to the theatre and I was just sat there crying in the dark thinking I'm not going to be able to go to the theatre anymore because I'm not going to get tickets to be a reviewer anymore and it was one of my favourite things to do and I'm not going to have my column and I'm not going to have the money every week that comes from that column help but that was quite short-lived in a way because It wasn't my only stream of income, you know, as anyone who's a freelancer knows, you often have multiple streams of income. So I had, I hadn't put all my eggs in one basket. You know, I had lots of different people that I worked for. So I knew that I had some kind of cushion as long as I kept on going, but I could also see that it wasn't a long-term prospect anymore. And I felt this real mixture of curiosity and excitement about what might come into that space Mm -hmm. and total fear of but this is what I do. How can I do anything else? Yeah. I, what? Ah. So obviously I talked to lots of friends about how to handle that situation. And a lot of people recommended talking to a coach. And so for the first time then, when I, I would have been in my mid thirties, then I talk, talked to a coach and the coach asked me loads of really interesting uh, and useful questions about you know why do you feel this way what are you missing out on what's missing from your life and the idea of fun just kept coming up the whole time no offense to my family but I was really in the thick of of stress and young kids and and sleep deprived I imagine sleep deprived all of those things and so in some ways it was a superficial thing that could be true of anybody that we probably do all need more fun in our lives and we don't need to become a stand-up comedian to get it but I realized that the idea of stand-up really ticked a box for me because it brought in that fun it was total switch and change of scene but it also used a lot of things from my existing life as a writer you know Mm -hmm. in my columns and in all of my writing at the time I really preferred writing short things that were funny 
than long things that were serious <laughs> and yeah. I often had to do both of those things and I realized if I do comedy I can just write the short stuff and make it funny <laughs> and so I started going to comedy classes and workshops I started doing improv workshops I did acting training I did clowning training started doing the open mic circuit uh, this was around 2009 2010 kept my freelance writing going uh-huh. so that's another thing that kind of is in parallel with what I said earlier about finding ways to experiment that don't mean putting all your eggs in one basket so I was able to keep my other work going Mm. Um, I did dial it back a bit as much as I could so I had time to try these other things so obviously if you're trying something new uh, that doesn't earn money because obviously I couldn't earn any money from comedy initially you know if you get 10 pounds it's like the most exciting thing that's ever happened to you (laughs) when you're an open mic comedian (laughs) or if you get if you get a glass of wine oh my god I get so excited when I'm would you like a drink what that I don't have to pay for oh my god I'm Joan Rivers um yeah so that was it was really useful for me to have that freelance background and it meant I could start doing this but I reached a crunch point where it was partly because uh in 2009 I had a miscarriage right in the middle of all of this happening so I had all this really exciting new life and and then this real sadness And I stopped doing comedy at that point after about six months I'd been doing it. And I just stopped because I I did one gig where I made all these really dark and awful jokes about miscarriage, which I really wish there was a video of because it would be like an incredible kind of performance piece. (laughs) But it was really dark. And I realized after that, like, you don't have the comedy chops to talk about this Mm. and you're not emotionally or psychologically ready to talk about this in front of other people just go away (laughs) so I kind of had a bit of a blip there and then I got pregnant with my third child in 2010 and the more pregnant I became the more confident I became that okay I'm back to myself now everything's okay I'm gonna go back into comedy so I've had a bit of a a a really exciting start then a total stop then I went back again when I was really really heavily pregnant and it was at that point that I realized oh I actually really love this I love this and this gives me so much and I feel like I have so many things I want to say to people it is so fun and I want to make things fun for other people you know that's the great thing about comedy is that you're you're cheering people up you're like bringing something that is is fun and funny to them Mm -hmm. and that is just so life-affirming it's it's completely it's an amazing thing to do um and it was at that point that I thought yeah I need to actually do something serious about that so in the midst of having this new third baby and by that point I was 36 37 I thought if you're going to do this properly, you need to take it seriously. And that was how I ended up doing 100 gigs in 100 consecutive nights in 2011 as a way of deciding, like, do or die. You know, you're Mm -hmm. either in this or you're not in this. Uh And if at the end of the 100 gigs, you just think this isn't for me, then you really gave it a good go. You know, that's a really useful thing as well. You know, uh, it's like commit commit and and then you're then you're making the informed choice yeah exactly and you have data so one of the reasons I 
wanted to do that was to build up like a bank of extreme data about myself to myself. Like, what is the case for me continuing with this? And I decided I would keep a diary of it. I would have a lot of video. I would have a lot of audio and I would have a way of constantly listening back to and watching myself back. Like, is this working? Is this not working? And I began to realize so many patterns of how we fool ourselves in the moment of what has worked and what hasn't worked, where the people liked you or they didn't like you. Often your individual perception of this is incredibly flawed. Mm -hmm. And when you look back at the evidence, we very rarely have any evidence. So we have no reason to question our own stupid ideas about ourselves. So very often my ideas would be completely wrong. I would come off a gig thinking, well, that bit didn't work and that bit didn't work. And then I'd listen back and like, no, no, the the other thing, that bit did work, but that bit that you thought worked, it didn't work. Mm. So I learned so much about the importance of independent evaluation and you know also not maybe taking that evaluation always from other people because sometimes I'd get really negative feedback from other people sometimes I'd get overly positive feedback from other people and trying to figure out my way through all of those things Mm -hmm. so the 100 gigs really helped with that and it had a beginning a middle and an end you know there was an end to it which I really needed because at this point I had three kids under the age of six And my husband was just tearing his hair out because I was going out to comedy every night for 100 nights. And the rule was it was consecutive. So if I missed a night because I one time I had food poisoning, another time I'd had had gigs cancelled, another time I lost my voice. And then I'd have to do two gigs the next night. If I missed two nights, I'd have to do three gigs the next night. Oh, you know, my goodness. You, you can do three gigs in a night in London easily. If you need to, you could probably do five if you really wanted to. So all of those things came together and I kept this record. And at the end of it, I thought if I get to the end, I'm going to have a diary of it and maybe I'll publish it as a book and so at the end of that I did have this diary I did want to continue with with comedy I did want to write a book of it (laughs) and so I wrote I laughed I cried um which sold in 2012 it came out in 2013 and by 2013 2014 I'd started doing comedy more seriously I'd started doing the Edinburgh Fringe yeah I started doing hosting book tours for people like Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders and I'd really you know changed my life um from being somebody who just sat behind a computer screen and enjoyed writing I still enjoy writing and being behind a computer screen (laughs) but uh it was something I really needed to do to to be myself and to be true to myself I would have been really kind of betraying myself if I hadn't done that but I didn't do it because I was confident I wouldn't say I was unconfident. I mean, you can probably tell from how I come across that I'm not an unconfident person. I was very close to my grandmother as a child. My grandmother was uh, ran a shop for 40 years and was a very confident, outgoing people person. Mm -hmm. And I always had her example and felt very close to her in character. So I'm not some I'm not a shrinking violet. People don't do comedy. And I've learned so much from doing it myself and from interviewing um, the hundreds of people that we've had on the podcast and all people I know who perform, people don't perform because they're confident. Confidence doesn't really anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. They often perform because they're not confident. Yeah. And, you know, I just interviewed the comedian Tom Allen about this recently. And he said, it's about being confidently insecure. And a lot of people who know him 
were very surprised to hear him say that mm. because they're like, but you're always confident. How can you possibly be insecure? And the fact is that he's very honest. He's like, no, I am really insecure, but I'm just confidently insecure. Yeah. And I feel the same way. Like I would never say of myself, oh, I'm insecure because I know what it means to really be insecure. I work with a lot of people and I spend time with a lot of people who are crippled by that mm-hmm. insecurity. But I would say, yeah, I have insecurities. We all do. But they don't mean that I'm not confident. I'm confident about my insecurities and I'm confident with my insecurities. I don't need to get rid of them. I don't expect to get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> I just let them be. And that the way that Tom said that, to be confidently insecure. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, the, it. key, it's the key to everything. And the most important thing as well is and this is where this idea of happy high status Mm. uh, comes in that I find so useful happy high status is about being confidently insecure it's about recognizing that does not look the same on everyone Mm -hmm. we have this huge myth that confident people only behave a certain way to do certain things you have to be confident none of these things are true you can be any kind of person and you can do any kind of thing and you can do it in your own way and increasingly the good thing about what we were talking about earlier of social media and comparisonitis the good thing is nowadays we see the evidence of this everywhere Mm -hmm. you know it's not as if every single person who has a youtube channel or who does loads of content on instagram live or reels or whatever every single person is the same kind of confidence they're not There are people doing that as introverts. There are people doing that with extreme vulnerability. There are people doing that with, you know, full on stage school tap dancing energy. And none of those things is right. And none of those things is wrong. They are all just what they are. Mm -hmm. And that was the big breakthrough for me that I learned by going out every night and being on stage myself and being in front of people is recognizing that it is an act your confidence is an act of creation that comes from you and it isn't something that is bestowed on you by other people or that you're born with it's something that comes from you when you do the stuff that you want to do and you do it in a way that is open that is sharing it with people that is generous and is not worrying too much about what other people think yes and that is what you know, confident insecurity is. Yeah. Generosity is such a big part of it as well, isn't it? And I love your podcast, How to Own the Room. And I know lots of folks listening will be big fans as well. And you've talked to so many women across across the world, across many different sectors about their their story of learning to, to own the rooms that they're in. And I would love to hear you speak about, you know, what are the patterns you see in how women in particular are conditioned to think about our own confidence, our own insecurities, our own potential to be the most confident version of ourselves we can be? Yeah, there are certain patterns and certain ways of thinking that almost everyone on the podcast, when I talk to them about it, identifies with it. Hillary Clinton is is probably the best example of this. Mm-hmm. So we had her on the podcast in 2019 and that was a massive turning point for the podcast, obviously. And it was incredibly exciting, (laughs) but I was slightly worried when I got that interview because we'd already been going for a year. 
we'd had interviews of people like Nigella Lawson, Professor Mary Beard, Trini Woodall, I think had been on by that point. We'd had a lot of really great people. And what was interesting and new about this podcast is that it's women talking about their public speaking journey. Yeah. So for someone like Nigella Lawson to ask her mm-hmm. when you had never, ever been on television ever before, what was it like the first time? Yeah, because that stuff is really useful and interesting. And people in the public eye generally don't get asked those kind of questions. And that is the kind of transferable knowledge that I wanted to pass on to other people. And often the answers are completely fascinating because I would be speaking to somebody fully formed at a successful point of their career, asking them to talk about the time when they knew nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was really interesting. But I became slightly worried when when Hillary Clinton agreed to do it because I worried that she wouldn't engage with this narrative that it's different for women. Mm. And we're careful about this on the podcast because on the one hand, we do, we know, I don't even have to spell out what I mean. You know, everyone knows it is different, right? Why? Because of 600,000 years, we can argue about the number of years of patriarchy. You know, that is why. Um, And it will always be that that exists. And it's only really in the last 100 years that we're coming to terms with, okay, how do we change that? What does that actually look like? How do we actually show up and be leaders and be the things that women haven't been allowed to do before ever in history or else if they have done it, they've been outliers. Right. So we all know that context. But there is a resistance there sometimes. Sandy Toxvig, the TV presenter, voiced it when she came on the podcast. She said, I don't understand this point of your podcast, Viv. Are you saying that women don't know how to own the room? And so that, which is a very interesting and correct point of view, it's not true that women don't know how to own the room. It's not true. But often they think that they don't or they question themselves. So this has always been a big a big part of the podcast. And when Hillary Clinton came on, I really worried that she would not speak about her life as a woman. You know, mm-hmm. I re- I worried that she would want to say, well, there were never any barriers for me because there's no discrimination against excellence. Brilliant Oprah Winfrey quote. Um, you know, as long as you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do your proper public speaking training, then everything will be fine. <laughs> and in some ways she did say that. But because of what had happened to her mm. in 2016 and the horrible disappointment that that was for her, and the gendered element of that particular professional disappointment, which is undeniable, and the fact that she had faced public speaking moments during the electoral debates Uh where she felt, I think for one of the first times in her life, that this was not about her as a professional and as a politician, as a lawyer, as a former Secretary of State, this was about her as a woman. Yeah. And she had spent her whole life trying to say, hey, don't make this about me being a woman. Mm. I am a professional. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of really interesting generational stuff around that. Um, So I was slightly nervous that that pattern, which comes up often in conversations of women making their peace with that conversation of, am I going to try and prove myself as a woman or are we beyond that? How do I fit in with all of that? How do I feel about all of that? Do I want to care about this? Do I want to not care about this? 
she really engaged with that and it was it was great to hear her do that and talk through how her thinking had changed on that because of what happened to her so that is the pattern that often emerges is that whoever I speak to on the podcast and we have spoken to to men um as well like Brian Cox from Succession and Matt Britton from Google Mm -hmm. because and I've recently done some happy high status podcasts where we talk to men as well that conversation about power and how you fit in with other people and what they think of you and what stereotypes and cliches other people have about you or you think they have about Mm. you uh, those things are relevant for everybody Um, it's not just true of women and and if when you start digging into this everybody no matter who they are has got their hang-ups about oh well I don't want people to think this about me or I don't want to be burdened by this thing or my mm-hmm. my father was this and so I don't want people to think that I'm this or I do want people to think I'm like my father or like all of these things and so in everybody so that's a pattern is everybody feels weighed down by some kind of expectation and often they have a story of how they've freed themselves a little bit from that expectation but the other really interesting thing on the podcast is that there are no patterns Mm. and what I love displaying on the podcast is that every single person has a different way of owning the room and they're often very open about this you know I remember interviewing the novelist Madeline Miller and her saying Um, well, I would never give a speech unless I completely prepared every single word of it. Whereas another person will say, you know, Bryony Gordon, the writer, she said, I I can't bear to prepare anything. I just turn up and talk. And showing all of these different ways of doing things, that they all lead somewhere, that they all give a result. And that then, again, not necessarily right, not necessarily wrong. They're the way that you do it. Mm-hmm. they're the way that you own your space they're the way that you show up as a leader not everybody's going to like it not everyone's going to want to copy it it's not going to be right for everyone and finding the confidence to experiment and find out what your way is rather than being tied up you know I think a lot of times when people approach this work or they start listening to the podcast they think oh now I'm going to learn the top seven rules of public speaking and as long as I can memorize those rules then everything will be okay. And everyone else who's a good public speaker, they must have memorized all of the rules. (laughs) And of course, that's just not true. I mean, I could could make up some bogus rules if I wanted to. And there are basic, you know, standard practice and good practice, like don't stand with your back to the audience. But even that might be an interesting decision. There aren't rules. And being freed from that and recognizing that there's, you know, life is not a school test where you're being ticked you know, you got this right, you got this wrong. We're, we are really schooled to believe that it is like that. Yeah. But it, is, it is not. It really isn't. Yeah. It's something we talk a lot about in our, in the bonds that we host, our six-week programme. Sometimes folks have to work really hard to get past this idea of this is this is school and how do I get an A? How do I get a gold star? What are all the boxes that I need to tick so that I can be the best at this and I've realized probably I think by the second or third bond I realized actually that is that is part of the work in itself is unlearning your relationship with this arbitrary you know this intense need for productivity and perfection that is conditioned yeah into us all 
Yeah, there's a quote by Sylvia Plath about respecting the court of your own conscience that I think is really interesting. And it always reminds me as well of uh, Nigella Lawson talks about in one of her books, she says, I don't know if I can call this a cake, but then I think, well, who's going to judge me? Like the International Court of Cakes? (laughs) And so many times in our life, I think, especially as women, we think there's some kind of international court of sisterhood or international court of public speaking or international court of um, confidence or whatever, something that will be like, you know, 10 out of 10, you're you're a good person or zero out of 10, no gold star for you, go home. Like, and the thing is the international court of cakes and the international court of confidence, they don't exist. The only court is the court of your own conscience. Mm-hmm. Like, does this feel good to you? Is this going to help you sleep at night? Does it feel right? Does it fit in with, you know, obviously you can't just do whatever you want. You've got to fit in with what is practical for your environment in your context and in your industry. Yeah. Really be realistic about these things. But does it sit right with you? And that's way more helpful than trying to match up to these imaginary standards. Yeah. And it it's... It leads us to my last question, which I always ask all our guests on Upfront Moment, which is, you know, when we achieve our goal of supporting a million women to be, let's say, confidently insecure, you achieve your goal of helping all of the people you work with find their happy high status. How will the world be different from your vantage point? Like, what is the future you see if this work was really able to impact the whole world I would really like for more people to feel content in themselves and not questioning of themselves and to feel that they're enough part of this idea of happy high status is really feeling like you're just you're good enough yeah you're good enough how you are most of the time when I'm talking to people about their confidence or their public speaking and I'll let them talk a lot about what's holding them back, what they think is wrong with them. And sometimes I get people to do this in front of large groups of people. And they'll say things like, I stumble over my words. I can't quite say what I want to say. I don't have a nice voice. I speak funny. I look funny. They'll say all kind of crazy things about themselves. And I'll be like, that's really interesting. Say more. And they'll keep talking. And I'll say to the other people there, this characterization that this person has of themselves, do you recognize it in them? Is that how you think of them? And everyone, 100% of people in the room will say, no, this person is articulate, they're interesting, they're authentic, they were brave enough to be vulnerable and share what they're thinking in front of all of us. That's incredible. (laughs) So that's what I would love, is for people to know that the internal narrative that they have about themselves, which is often so questioning and doubting, is completely unnecessary. And it doesn't mean you have to go to the flip side of thinking you're the most amazing person in the world and, yeah, you should become, you know, queen of the world or whatever. You don't need to go to, like, Donald Trump syndrome um, if you're giving up uh, this doubt of yourself. You can just be balanced. Be balanced, be in equilibrium, be neutral, listen more, know that you're enough. (laughs) It's pretty basic. 
I do think there's a lot of people out there who are pushing these kind of messages now because mm. they're kind of urgent because there's so yeah, much in the culture yeah. yeah that that pushes you to uh be louder be more uh you go girl and the secret is really I don't want to say be less no don't <laughs> say that. I don't want you anyone don't to think that. to be lesser than but don't think that you have to be everything you already well, it's are just be I think enough. it's just yeah. just be it's not be more be less it's to be and be as you say it's the contentment that comes that comes with that because I do think you know and I know we've spoke about this before the worlds that we work in are often unfortunately dominated by those quite toxic narratives of you must be bolder and must be stronger and must achieve this international court of confidence or else you're doing it wrong and you know I think that's why people respond so positively to the conversations that you know you have on your podcast with your guests where in the one we've had today where it's like this is not nobody's got it all figured out and it's it's very different for each of us and it's different depending on where you're at in your life what's happening in your world at that point and it changes and ebbs and flows and I think it's learning to be comfortable with that ebb and flow and not seeing the the ebb as, oh, I'm not a confident person anymore. Like it's it's all part of the just part of the process. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, thank you for this conversation. I've really loved uh, especially hearing the backstory to the, the hundred days of comedy uh, adventure. <laughs> So thank you for being here. We will put a link to your book and your podcast in the show notes. Thank you so much for the work you do to help all of us own the room, find our happy high status. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thanks so much, Lauren. May we all be more upfront. Hooray! Thank you for tuning in to this week's Upfront Moment. Before I say goodbye, I want to remind you to follow Upfront on Instagram and join the other 5,000 women all over the world who get our weekly newsletter. Go to weareupfront.com to find out more. Bye friend, I'll see you on Monday for your next Upfront Moment.